0: Welcome to Eat, Drink, Innovate, the podcast about food startups, innovators and
1: entrepreneurs who are making their mark in Australia's dynamic food and beverage industry. The future of food is happening here. Come join Susie White at the table to eat, drink and innovate. Hi everyone, I'm Susie White, a product innovation coach, author and podcaster in the food and beverage industry from Melbourne, Australia. In this podcast, I talk with food entrepreneurs, innovators, startups and industry experts to get behind the scenes and find out how they're building successful businesses and making their mark on the Australian food industry. Today, I'm talking with Bronte Hogarth. She's the founder of Raise the Bar, a social enterprise which transforms spent coffee grounds from local cafes into coffee scrub bars with zero-waste packaging. In this episode, you'll hear how Bronte's eco-entrepreneur upbringing and a desire to lead a zero-waste lifestyle prompted her to step change from a career in digital marketing to start her own waste upcycling skincare business. Her goal is to reduce the 100,000 tonnes of wasted coffee grounds that are going into landfill each year. After developing early product recipes at home, Bronte successfully ran a crowdfunding campaign to fund the shift out of her kitchen and into external manufacturing, which has proven to be a key driver in the startup success of Raise the Bar. And in the aftertaste section, I'll think back on my chat with Bronte and share an insight with you from her business experience that just might help you in your own food and beverage business. So welcome to the podcast today, Bronte.
0: Hi, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be on your podcast.
1: Oh, look, it is such a pleasure talking to you. I'm super excited about today's discussion so let's go back and set the scene because it's it's always fascinating to know how people got the idea and what was really the push for them to start their business. Could you talk us through a little bit about what were you doing before you started Raise the Bar and what was that moment when you thought you might be interested in this idea and starting this business?
0: Yeah, sure. So before I started Raise the Bar, and actually the time when I came up with the idea for Raise the Bar, it was when I was on maternity leave with my first child um, and I had quite a bit of time to think up, well, not not a lot of time, but <laughs> more time um, to sort of think and ponder a few things. And, um, yeah, I'd had a conversation with a friend of mine who was actually a coffee roaster, and we were just chatting about the amount of waste, the coffee waste left over from making their coffee for all their customers every morning, and that was really when the idea for me sparked. Um, so my background is actually in digital marketing, but I've always worked within the sort of sustainability industries and for a lot of non-profit organisations um, that had a sustainability or climate change focus. So that's always been a really strong passion of mine, um, and something that's just really yeah lit, lit my fire. So as soon as we had that conversation, um, it just got me thinking. You know, there's got to be something better that we could be doing with these coffee grounds that are just going to waste. You know, they're such a valuable resource, and yeah, at the same around the same time, um, I had started using a a coffee scrub product and so it was a really simple idea at the time it was just you know we could use these coffee grounds that are going to waste every week in products like these coffee scrubs that I and so many people love using and hopefully you know that could just be the start of um yeah being able to make a change and so yeah that's where it all started and we officially launched last year in 2018. So your life
1: is being turned upside down anyway. You're on maternity leave, you've had your first child, you're sleep deprived, great time to start a business. And, and you <laughs> exactly. yeah, you've, you've obviously spoken to this friend and you've seen this issue around wastage and coffee grounds. How does that naturally go with beauty care or skincare products? Is that a sort of a, an obvious fit? And how did you go about developing that product?
0: Yeah. So it's a really interesting story, which I think there is a backstory to. So if I go way back to when I was a child, um, my mum actually had a organic skincare business. She was probably one of the pioneers in Australia in the industry. And um, she ran that business for 20 years. So it was a all about natural um, skincare that was really promoting that sort of purposeful message about not costing the earth. And so that's sort of the environment I grew up in. I even remember going to the factory, which at this stage of her business, it was a huge factory. Like they were extremely successful. And I remember helping to pack lip balms and putting the stickers on top of them and Um, helping to be part of that process. And it didn't mean much to me at the time. I just thought it was something fun, you know, going to help mom someday is not fun, you know, but it did leave an impact on me. And she closed that business down and started doing something else. So she was always very entrepreneurial. And so the idea for the coffee to be used in a skincare product, it did feel like the most natural fit to me just because of that. And she actually helped me a lot in the formulation of the product. And the other funny thing is, is that when she started her business, she was 28 years old. And when I officially launched Raise the Bar, I was also 28 years old. So there's these really interesting parallels that have now happened in mine and my mom's life. And there was one day recently where I was packing all of this product and Um, jars of coffee grounds to show people and all the the ingredients in a bag to go to a market. And she looked at me and she was helping me that day. And she was just like, oh, my goodness, this is just like deja vu. It takes me straight back to me doing exactly this and her mum helping her at the time. And it's it's funny you say that
1: because one of the questions I do ask people on this podcast is, you know, what were your friends and family around you saying? Because for some it's it's such a departure from either their lifestyle or their their career choices. For you, it, it it almost, as you said, it's this fabulous echo of what your mother has done. So it sounds like she was wildly supportive.
0: Yes, absolutely. And um, yeah, she really did help me to pull the first formula together. And it really was just a labor of love at home I was going out to local cafes picking up their grounds and we do have a, a process to um, make sure that they're safe for reuse and skincare products but apart from that it was really me um, just playing around with different formulations until uh, something landed and then luckily early on we've been able to start working with a manufacturer who is extremely experienced in um, natural skincare formulations and they were able to improve our formula even more. Let's talk about the product themselves. So
1: how did you know or how did you choose what to make first?
0: That was sort of the easy part because coffee scrubs, they've just become such a sort of trending item in the skincare world. I thought that was an easy place to start, but having used quite a few coffee scrubs myself, they make quite a mess in the shower. It goes everywhere and that can be a lot of fun. It can also be a hassle to clean up. Um, So that was one thing that I didn't like about the coffee scrubs that were out there and most of them are not only are they made using fresh coffee that's never been brewed, so that's where we're really different because we're, diverting waste coffee grounds from landfill by repurposing them in our products but the other point of difference is that our coffee scrub is a solid bar it looks like a soap it's it's not um you wouldn't use it the same way as a soap to wash every day you only would use it a couple times a week but it's solid and makes a lot less mess than the loose coffee scrubs so they, they were the two things that I really wanted to give the product that was just something a little bit different and um, it answered a few things that I um, thought were not problems but just sort of things in other products that I wasn't personally happy with. Um, and yeah, people seem to really like both, you know, both of those things, not only the impact side but also the difference in the product its appearance and being a solid bar it also means that um, we are completely able to avoid plastic packaging and that was another incredibly important thing to me especially being in an industry like the beauty industry where plastic packaging um, it is essential for the safety of products in a lot of cases and I'm not going to say that that is not the case um, because it is about the safety first but then there is a lot of over-packaging in the skin and beauty industry.
1: It is tricky when you set yourself up as a zero-waste platform, you right, to play that through consistently through the whole product, including the packaging. And I've, I've seen yours. It's this beautiful, raw-feel cardboard, and, and it says it can be either recycled or composted.
0: How did you find that packaging solution? Yeah, so it is all just, it's all paper. So paper and cardboard can be composted at home, And um, yeah, recycled. But obviously our preference is if you've got a compost or even a worm farm, throw it in there just because of everything that's happening at the moment with recycling worldwide and not knowing, you know, exactly what if anything is being recycled, especially in Australia. So yeah, compost first would be our, our preference.
1: These are not just plain coffee bars. You've got two varieties that I saw at the moment. There's a peppermint and an orange. Tell me about those choices.
0: Yeah, yeah. So um, we've got our two scents. And if you've tried one of our bars, and I hope everyone after listening to this does give one a try. They will. (laughs) um, Yeah, the first thing you'll notice when you open it, it's got this incredibly rich chocolatey coffee smell to it and that's because we're using this beautiful raw cocoa butter and it just gives it the most delicious chocolate smell some people have tried to take a bite so don't do that you can't actually eat it but it smells good enough to eat and so anything that goes with chocolate we realized would work really well with our bars so Orange, that smells like a Jaffa. It just takes you straight back to eating I don't know, Jaffas as a, as a kid. And, um, yeah, the peppermint is just beautiful, really refreshing and zingy and sort of um, combines really well with that rich chocolateiness.
1: Let's go back to you knocking on the doors of local cafes. So you're based in Sydney. What was, what was that like? Were, were cafes used to people asking for their leftover coffee grounds at that
0: stage? They weren't. They were very interested in what I was going to be using them for. And um, their first kind of response was always like, oh, you're going to use it for the garden. And they, yeah, they weren't really thinking that it would be used for anything else at that stage. Um, as the kind of years have gone on, I've noticed that a lot of the cafes that we speak to now, they're much more aware of um, people wanting to reuse the, the grounds so it seems like it's becoming more common, even if it is just more and more people picking them up to use in the garden. Um, it's great. I think it's absolutely, I hope that that's happening uh, more and more often all around Australia and the world.
1: So let's, let's go through, you've got your formulas, you've been working with your mum and you've got those ready and then you said you started working with a manufacturer. Uh, how does even one find a manufacturer of, of coffee soap?
0: Yeah, so it, w- it was a real challenge and um, it was it was a hard time as well because we had to also overcome with the manufacturers the hesitance to work with us and that was because we were working with repurposed coffee grounds. So that was a kind of a barrier for a lot of manufacturers. They just didn't really want to enter into the discussion and so it took a while for us to find um A, a manufacturer who kind of aligned with our values, but also B, somebody who was prepared to even enter into the discussion of working with us and the uh, repurposed coffee grounds. Because of that, um, we actually were late in delivering our first products to customers who supported us in our crowdfunding campaign. Um, So that's how we got off the ground, uh, an amazing crowdfunding campaign yeah, I had to sort of communicate to all of those people who supported us that it would be a little bit later than expected. And that was because of the difficulties in actually finding the right manufacturer.
1: So you were saying right early on in the interview, you launched in 2018. What's your estimate on all that development time up until you literally got the product launched? How long were you working on it before you you got it to market?
0: It was probably about 18 months. So it was a long time. Yeah. And also being a mum, first time mum at the same time. So, you know, there was, there was a lot going on. It didn't have my full attention.
1: Yeah, I can totally imagine that. Totally. You, you're nurturing a whole human being on top of nurturing your business at the same time. So let's talk about the, um, you mentioned the crowdfunding campaign, because this is actually when you caught my eye, because I keep an eye on these, these campaigns to see who's up and coming. And it was the ING Dream Starter campaign that's done in partnership with Start Some Good. And we're actually going to be talking to the founder of that, Tom Dawkins, later in the podcast. So that'll be interesting. How did you find out about that? And, and tell us a little bit about what's required to do a, a crowdfunding campaign like that.
0: Yes, I just couldn't recommend applying for Dream Starter highly enough. If you've got an idea for an innovative uh, product or service that really has a social um, purpose and driver behind it dreamstarter is a fantastic thing to apply for so it is a essentially a crowdfunding campaign that you run and if you meet your minimum target then ing uh, will support you with a matched funding so it's a really great way. Um, it, it is, There is an application process and we we actually applied twice for it before we got accepted. So it wasn't first time that we actually um, were accepted. But, yeah, I really wanted to try again. Um, yeah, it was just a really nice way to build community from the start and I'm so glad that you found us and were able to join in on the community so early on because a lot of the people who supported the crowdfunding They have been our key supporters since that time and keeping in touch with everything that we're doing and there's just nothing really more valuable than that. And, yes, the funds to start the business as well, Um, you know, you couldn't do probably a lot of the things as quickly as you'd like to um, without that. But then beyond that, ING and Start Some Good, who run the program, they really support you More than I could have ever expected because they truly want you to be successful and make a difference in the. Issues that the businesses trying to solve.
1: Yeah, and for you, it, it sounds like that was that pivotal point between I'm going to just make these bars in my kitchen and sell them online versus I'm going to go to a manufacturer. Because normally, if you go to a co-manufacturer, they're asking for sort of like hundreds and thousands in terms of units made. It's not yes, you can make fifty and go away. It's you've got to make it worth their while to run the machines for you. So it sounds like that was sort of the leg up and in investment to get into larger scale production. Is
0: that fair, Bronte? Absolutely. It's, it's completely fair. And um, it was clear. It was like one of our um, objectives on the crowdfunding that we had there. It was, we want to be able to work with uh, a manufacturer to make the, make more of the product to make more of an impact and to improve it. So yeah, that was very, very true.
1: It's time for a quick break now to thank our sponsor. When we come back, you'll hear how Bronte successfully ran a crowdfunding campaign to step out of her own kitchen and fund the shift to external manufacturing. I'd like to say a quick thanks to today's sponsor who helped make this podcast possible, the Monash Food Innovation Centre. They can help you fast track and de-risk your new products in the Australian market or export markets like China. Did you know that only one in ten food and beverage products survive the first year of launch? That means nine out of ten fail. If you'd like to be one of those businesses that gets it right, then the Monash Food Innovation Centre can help. It has cutting-edge technologies, product development services, and runs capability workshops to upskill business owners and employees in the art and science of food innovation. Whether you're a food startup or a large corporation, check them out at www.foodinnovationcentre.com and see how they can help grow your business through innovation. Welcome back. Today, I'm talking to Bronte Hogarth, the founder of Raise the Bar. And so far, you've heard how she's approached a local cafes for their used coffee grounds, She's created initial formulas with her mother in her kitchen and then turned to crowdfunding to raise money to pay for external manufacturing. And so I asked Bronte, just how did the crowdfunding work? Welcome back. Today, I'm talking to Bronte Hogarth, the founder of Raise the Bar. And so far, you've heard how she's approached local cafes for their used coffee grounds, She's created initial formulas with her mother in her kitchen and then turned to crowdfunding to raise money to pay for external manufacturing. And so I asked Bronte, just how did the crowdfunding work?
0: It's almost like having a second full-time job, just the crowdfunding campaign in itself. So a lot of people will actually run a crowdfunding campaign for each product launch that they want to do. Um, And after the first crowdfunding, I was like, wow, not sure the next time I'll be able to do that. But it was really, yeah, a a lot of work beforehand. It's not just about the page and how it looks. It's also about the relationship building um, that you do beforehand, about how you're going to get the word out. So there's a lot of things to make it a successful crowdfunding that you, you need to do. I was talking to anybody that I knew who'd run a crowdfunding before, just trying to get any tips, any helpful information. Um, I read books on crowdfunding and it's, you know, um, they kind of follow a typical journey. A lot of people pledge at the beginning and a lot of people pledge at the end. And then you sort of have a very hard time during the campaign of just working, working, trying to keep things going.
1: A lot of people go on to those campaigns thinking, well, I made it on. I'm there. Done. Bring the masses with the money to me. And it and it kind of doesn't work that way. It's like, no, no, you've got to go build the community through your social networks and your news. And now you're on the journey. You've done the Kickstarter. You've found the co-manufacturer. You're, you're getting product made, which is amazing. Now, where do you sell it? What's this next step? You've got an online store you mentioned. Are you selling in other channels as well?
0: Yeah. So we we started online because that's also just coming back to my background in digital marketing. um, That was where I was most comfortable. And so I knew um, that I could do that and I could do that quickly. But what I'm noticing now a year in is that, yeah, I think it's time for us to start exploring other channels. And um, I think, yeah, some presence offline in physical retail stores who sort of align with our values, that could be the next step for us. So wholesaling. And it's not that we haven't wanted to do it. It's more been a question of timing and where to start first and where to put your resources. And as much as I wish that I could duplicate myself, there is just one of me and you can't do everything all at once. Let's talk about
1: your website because anyone who looks across sort of the packaging and the website and, and your logos and even some of the stalls or stands I've seen you do, they're, they're beautiful. You clearly have an eye for design. Is, is that all you?
0: So um, I definitely um, absolutely love anything creative and that's where I feel most kind of alive and, and happy and um, I love sort of, yeah, working on those parts business, but I've actually just called on a lot of friends along the way. So all the photography I do, it's with a, a wonderful friend of mine who is an absolutely amazing photographer. And um, the designs of our packaging, that's with uh, another friend who um, I've been able to work with. And it can it could go either way with friends. It really could. It could be really easy to work with them or, or really hard to work with them. It's just sort of recognizing that you can't everything and relinquishing as much as control over some of the things as you can while still making sure it's all following sort of the vision. Um, The website I am using the platform Shopify which yeah I highly recommend if you want to get something up easily and with a free theme, we were able to do easy customizations to have a really great-looking website. Um, so if you have some good images, some good copy, uh, you can get started um, really easily online. So that's sort of why I focused there first. It's all sort of inbuilt into a lot of these platforms these days. You don't even need to sort of have a developer knowledge to build your site.
1: I can see your digital expertise in it. it it's deceptively clean and simple looking and, and sometimes that's the hardest to get to, that look, that really consistent, clear, simple look that, that just all lines up and I, and I think your packaging and your product and your website do that beautifully. You talked a little bit then about, about your vision and I like to ask this question to my guests. So for you, Bronte, you know, how, how high is up? What sort of business would you like raise the bar to grow up into?
0: like when I think about this it it really always comes back to what we're trying to do and at the end of the day what Raise the Bar is trying to do is stop coffee waste from going to landfill but on a broader sense it's to bring an awareness to the fact that sometimes or oftentimes the things that we throw away um, have so much value left in them and if we can Um, start thinking about things in that way in all aspects of our lives we could all really be doing small changes that have big impacts so that's really the north star for us like how can we keep building a community that is inspiring people to reduce waste and how can we literally do that through our products The bigger goal for us is that we can apply our model that we're doing um, in coffee to other waste streams and we've identified a few where we're already seeing potential ingredients that are are byproducts that are just normally thrown away uh, that we could apply our model to in the future and hopefully give a little bit of love to ingredients with a lot left to give.
1: And um, kind of looking back on your journey now, is this this something you wish you'd known? I feel like you've been really clever and informed about knowing who to go to for help at what points. But is there something you thought, gosh, I wish I'd known that (laughs) before I started or on the journey?
0: Yeah, um, I, I feel like a lot of people probably say this, but what I wish I'd done much earlier on is getting out and talking to People talking to cafe owners, talking to people who I thought could be my customers, and actually having real life conversations. Because I spent a lot of the first sort of eighteen months that I mentioned more researching behind the computer, figuring all this stuff out, trying to get all my ducks in a row. Yeah, I think I could have done a lot of things quicker if I'd actually just gotten out and um, spoken to the key people who are going to be crucial to this idea, you know, succeeding or not. You can get very caught up in the planning and that actually prevents you from doing. Um, So I wish I'd sort of known that a bit earlier.
1: And what advice or words of wisdom would you have for maybe other, you know, eco entrepreneurs or food startups who were trying to have a go and do something like this themselves?
0: I would say, yeah, just, Get started as soon as you can and know that there is not going to be the time when suddenly everything is ready and your perfect product is there. And I can't even tell you how much in the last year since we actually launched how much I've learned in that short time, as opposed to all of the time before that, where it was really more of a a theoretical stage. And I know you have to go through both stages of the process, but yeah, just start as soon as you can.
1: Terrific advice. And now how could listeners find out more about you and um, find out where to buy your products?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you can have a look at our website. It's www.uraisethebar.com and you can find out yeah all about us our story our mission We've also got um instagram and we post a lot do a lot of updates there so that's also just at you raise the bar that's the two channels that you can connect with us um, sign up to our email list if you like sustainability news every now and again and hopefully connect with you there
1: well, thank you so much for sharing your startup story today, Bronte. It's it's just so inspiring to hear people start from you know with a vision, and and for you, you clearly had a goal around transforming waste into usable products and upcycling. Thanks for sharing that with us, and um, I wish you every success in the future. Thank
0: you, Susie. Thank you so much.
1: Aftertaste, the sweet taste of success. Thanks for sticking around. This is the part of the podcast when I think back on my chat with Bronte Hogarth from Raise the Bar and reflect on a learning from her business experience. And today, I'm going to talk about Bronte's parting words of wisdom. That is her advice for other food and beverage entrepreneurs to get started as soon as you can. Now, Bronte said, what I wished I'd done earlier on was getting out and talking to people who I thought could be my customers you can get very caught up in the planning and that prevents you from doing. I can't even tell you how much I learned in the last year since we actually launched in that short time, as opposed to all the time before. This comment was based on Bronte's experience in which she researched, planned and set up her business for about 18 months prior to launching her product. Now, I think Bronte's being way too hard on herself here. She's done an amazing job. That's actually a fairly typical time for a packaged food or beverage producer to go through all the critical stages of development before launching a product. In that time, Bronte did all the necessary steps to create her beautiful business, such as identifying her focus and passion area around waste optimization, developing an initial recipe. Creating a brand design, sourcing packaging options, finding a manufacturer, sourcing some funding, ordering raw materials, and manufacturing finished products prior to a market launch. That's a lot to do. The bit that Bronte felt she was missing early on was that consumer feedback to really guide her actions and better shape her coffee scrub products so that she delivered the best for her end users. For the purposes of product innovation, I call this the zero moment of truth. I've hijacked this term from Google, who use it to talk about when consumers go online to research a product. But that's not how I define it. In new product innovation, it's the time when you share your idea with consumers when you really have zero, nothing, zip, except an idea, You do this before the raw materials are ordered, your brand is created, or you even have a product recipe. So let me take a moment to step back and explain firstly what a moment of truth is. It's a key moment when a customer interacts with a brand, a product, or a service to form an impression about it. It might be a favorable impression or an unfavorable impression. And essentially, there are four key moments of truth for any new product. So if you truly want to understand how successful your new product might be, these are the four times you need to go to your consumers and check their response. So let's talk about the zero moment of truth. That's when you simply tell or show a potential customer your early product idea, what it could look like, taste like, its ingredients, its color, its packaging. You explain and show all of this before it even exists. And the purpose is simply to understand their initial interest and to shape your product offer to better satisfy their needs and wants. So what you're looking for at the zero moment of truth is really to understand what people think about three key factors. The first one is how unique is your product? Is it something new and different? Or is there something in the market that already does the same job in the same way? The second factor is appeal. Does it sound like something they, your customers, might want to try? Is it going to pique their interest? And the third factor is whether it satisfies a real need or want. Could they use it or do they just simply really desire it? By checking these things early at the zero moment of truth, you're checking before you've invested a huge amount of time or effort or resources into buying ingredients, making a product, packaging it, and launching it. When I sometimes see product makers who have gone to all the trouble of making a new food or beverage, and consumers look at it with a complete lack of interest, ah, I know they've already failed at the zero moment of truth, and they could have seen that coming a lot earlier on. Now, let's talk about the other key moments of truth for when you're developing a new product, the points at which you want to check your consumer's response. So the first and second moments of truth, that was an expression that was coined by former CEO of Procter & Gamble and marketing guru, A.G. Lafley. This gives me flashbacks to when I was a young and naive product manager with Procter & Gamble in Geneva, Switzerland. Moving on. The first moment of truth is the one that occurs in store. And it's the first time a potential purchaser sees your product in store in the competitive shelf set. And that's when for you as a product maker, it's really critical for you to check whether your product, its packaging and design is working super hard to deliver the following. Firstly, is it helping drive identification? Can people tell what it is? Is that a soup bowl or a salad bowl? Is it offering usability cues? Is it helping people understand when and how they should use it? For example, some of the very early plant-based meat substitutes. The products were on the market and consumers didn't know how to use them. When they saw a cut up container of mushrooms, they just thought, oh, well, that's convenient. Someone's already cut them for me. But when it was packaged and labelled as mushroom mince and put with the meat products in the chiller, then they understood exactly when it should have been used. Oh, it's mince substitute. I use it when I'm cooking a spaghetti bolognese. That's a usability cue. At the first moment of truth, your product should also help say the positioning. Who is it for and why is it for them? Is this for kids under five or is this an adult product? It should stand out and it should have really clear branding. It tells people who makes it and it catches their attention. Often I hear really frustrated product makers bemoaning the fact that their product tasted so good and they just didn't understand why it didn't sell well. That's the first hint that you failed at the first moment of truth, and people didn't even get past the very first hurdle of buying it. It didn't stimulate enough interest, appeal, and trial. Let's talk now about the second moment of truth, and that's the moment when a consumer actually purchases and then goes on to consume or use your product. Now this is when the product has to stand up to the true test. Does the taste The texture, the sensory delivery doesn't live up to what the packaging and the design promised. And the intention here is that the product tastes so delicious, it will drive people to buy it again. So some of the key factors consumers are considering at this point, taste. Was it delicious? Was it what I expected? Was it what you promised to me? Preservation. Was the product fresh or within its use by date? Usability. Was it easy in terms of the packaging to open, to use, and then to store again? Sustainability. Does it offer those environmentally friendly and easy to dispose of opportunities? And lastly, was it value for money? Was the experience worth what it cost me? And that's when we come then to the very last moment of truth for consumers. And that's the third moment of truth. And quite simply, that's beyond our control. That's when your customers become your advocates. And by either word of mouth, or online reviews, they tell others about your product either favorably or unfavorably. And if you've done a good job through the previous three moments of truth, then the reviews will be positive, which will encourage more people to find and try your product. So what does this mean for you? Well, by all means, do your knowledge gathering, your pre-launch planning and researching. That is a critical step for any new product development. But make sure that as early as you can, you also get to your potential consumers at the zero moment of truth when it's simply an idea so that you can see how to shape and improve it as early as possible. If you'd like to know how to test your product ideas at the zero moment of truth, there are some great tips and techniques on page 139 of my book, Innovation Feast, Create New Product Ideas to Feed Your Hungry Business. You can find that on Booktopia or on Amazon or my website, and I'll put all the links in the show notes. And I'd really like to hear from you. How are you shaping your early ideas with some of your potential consumers? Do you stop people in the streets? Do you approach them at a local farmer's market? Are you asking your loyal customers from an email list? Are you stopping them in the retail store? Or are you posing a question online? What's working well for you? And what would you recommend for other food and beverage producers? Feel free to give me a call on the Eat Drink Innovate podcast hotline. It's 613-884-8233. And leave a message. I'll be sharing your ideas and suggestions on a future podcast. Well, that's it for this episode. Many thanks again to my guest, Bronte Hogarth from Raise the Bar for sharing her amazing eco-entrepreneur startup story with us. And thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please be sure to tell a friend about the podcast and join me next time to eat, drink and innovate. Do you have any suggestions about successful food or beverage entrepreneurs and innovators in Australia that you think Susie should be talking to? You can get in touch with her at eatdrinkinnovate.com.au forward slash podcast and find all the show note links and innovation resources there too. And if you like this podcast, please help others discover it by leaving a review on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from.